So, as I mentioned this morning, we'll conclude our study here in Proverbs now, and uh, we'll be looking at the topic of pride and humility. Now, the outline that you have there on your note sheet, and really a good, a good portion of this uh, study that we're going to look at, we'll be interacting with some thoughts from um, Wayne Mack in his book, Humility, The Forgotten Virtue. Uh, it's a book that we went through several years back as a, as a church. So I just want to commend that book to you. If you're looking for further study on this issue of pride and humility, Wayne Mack's book, The Forgotten Humility, The Forgotten Virtue, uh, really, really helpful. Uh, uh, So I just want to commend that to you. So as we've been going through our study together, we've been bumping into those Proverbs that make clear for us the folly of pride and the wisdom of humility. And so that's how we've broken this, uh, this lesson up. And I want to begin by first looking at the folly of pride. And as we consider that, we can trace its roots back to Genesis 3 with the temptation of, of Adam and Eve. So I want to begin by reading a familiar passage, but very instructive when we think about this issue of pride. So if I can have somebody read that for us. Sorry about that. Text message. Continue. Oh, my, me. Sorry. <laughs> the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Okay, thanks, Des. So that, that passage is really helpful as we think about this issue of the folly of pride. And you can see at the center of this is esteeming ourselves wiser or better in some way. And in this case, ultimately it's against God. Esteeming ourselves wiser than God, not listening to what He has said, but leaning on our own understanding. And this sin needs to be warred against like every other, every other sin since really it is the, it's the sin, or we could put it this way, it's the womb from which all other sin is born, is pride. Um, but instead of warring against it, uh, fallen humanity really actually promotes pride, right? And let's, let's think about the way that that happens. What are some ways that you see pride being promoted um, around us in our, in our world. What are some ways that you see pride? Diana Lynn? People compare themselves with other people or with advertisements on TV or anything that where you compare, but usually you don't compare yourself with somebody who you think is better. You usually compare yourself, at least I do, with somebody I don't think is as good and that right. causes me to have pride. 
Yeah, very good. Great, great example. What else? What are some other ways that you see pride being promoted? Oh, other examples, really? Wow, everybody's just like humble. They're just like, I don't know. I don't even know what pride is. <laughs> it's like, well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Some some self glory behind that, Millie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's that's a that's an excellent example, right? Just pushing back against help, right? Because you want to feel like you're self-sufficient, uh, and that yeah. So there's a, there's many different ways that that pride can manifest itself. So by nature, we we don't see pride as that ultimate sin. Uh, James four makes it clear that Satan wants to promote pride and really to squelch humility. And he has strategies for doing this, and one is to fan the flames of pride, right? And, and to stamp out any small spark of humility. And if we know our own hearts, we know that we are prone to pride because pride is natural, as we see from this passage in Genesis 3. We, we inherit that thinking from Adam and Eve, right? We inherit this thinking of self-sufficiency, that we're wiser than others, as Millie said, that we've kind of got it figured out. We don't need help from the outside, but nothing could be further uh, from the truth when it comes to that. Um, so our world promotes pride. Satan comes along, seeks to uh, stir that up within us, our own fallen hearts, all of those things working in tandem. Uh, it's clear when we think about pride that we're dealing with a very serious and formidable enemy that needs to be addressed. So it's, it's vitally important for us that we take care over our own hearts and look for those subtle ways in which pride can creep in so that we don't find ourselves ensnared by it. Um, on your notes there, let's, let's take a look at here at why being prideful is foolishness or the folly of pride from God's perspective. Uh, so it's foolish for us to be proud about ourselves because of God's attitude toward the proud person. And in Proverbs, we've seen uh, things that God hates, right? Um, and so this is very illustrative for us. We saw in Proverbs 6 here, it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, uh, abomination to him. Notice the first thing here, haughty eyes, right? Proud looking eyes, that, eyes that look with pride or arrogance on things or others. Proverbs 16, 5, uh, 15 says it very clearly as well. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Um, and again, notice that issue, arrogant in heart. And then it ultimately manifests itself out in our actions and our words 
uh, what we do is manifested by what's going on in our hearts. And the reason for that is because pride really is self-idolatry. It's, it's the worshiping of self. And God alone, the scriptures tell us, is to be worshiped and served because his will is supreme and he alone is God. He's the one who is worthy of all worship. But pride really asserts that man should take supremacy over God. If you remember, God proclaimed through Isaiah in Isaiah 48, 11, he said, my glory I will not give to another. Right? So God is not tolerating a usurper who attempts to rise above him. God hates pride because pride sets itself up in opposition to him. And, and the, the man who is proud attempts in some way to steal the glory that God alone deserves. Um, and again, this, this happens to us in, in the church, right? We, we boast in our gifts, maybe. Um, and we take pride in those things. And we think that somehow we've done these things on our own. And so we must guard our hearts and not think that just because we're in Christ that we're immune to pride and all the subtle ways that it can seep into our lives and manifest itself in our actions. So James tells us that God is opposed to the proud. And when we are proud, we're setting ourselves up in opposition to God. Um, and, and when you think about that, you just think about the folly of that for a moment, right? Setting yourself up in opposition to God. That's a bad idea, right? When you think about who you are and who God is, uh, it's not wise uh, to do that. And so the scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud person, right? And ultimately, he will bring that proud person down if that proud person does not repent. And that's an important note there, Chris. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't necessarily have to be proud of yourself. You, you can be proud of something. Right. Like you can be proud of God. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So any, any good things that we see happening in us or through us, we give glory to God for that, right? Because we recognize that I didn't create myself, right? I, I, I can have correct pride. Yes. Yeah, right? Because the scriptures tell us, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? So that there's a, there's a pride there. There's an exuding of that, of that pride, and it's in the Lord. That's, that's how it is to be done. So um, I love what Thomas Watson had to say about uh, God and him bringing down the, the proud man. He says, the proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses the mark. Uh, very, very sobering reminder that um, we are to humble ourselves before, before the Lord. Uh, so now, as we think about this from our perspective as believers, we have the privilege of being on God's side. We're, we're at peace with him. Uh, but when we demonstrate that proud and arrogant attitude, it's as, as, it's as if we're choosing to play for another team, to use a, a sports example there. Okay? If you're familiar with basketball, just picture yourself shooting shots on your opponent's goal and making a bunch of shots and boasting in those. Right? You're working for the other team. You're scoring points for the other team, so to speak. And so we must guard our hearts and recognize that Satan 
is seeking our downfall as believers in Christ. And if we say that we love God, which all believers say, how can we ever be content with doing something that he hates, right? We can't, right? We, we don't want to sin against the Lord, so we must guard our hearts in this, and we must make war against that. Um, and then it's foolish also for us to be proud about ourselves because we have no reason apart from Christ to be proud, right? We have no reason apart from Christ to be proud. What would you think of a person who went around speaking very dogmatically about all sorts of issues, but was always wrong on those issues, right? Somebody go around and asserting two plus two equals five, right? You're kind of embarrassed by that. They're assured, they're prideful in their statement, but they're dead wrong, right? And that's the feeling that we ought to have. When we see that type of ignorance displayed, it embarrasses us because it's revealing how little a person really knows. But that's exactly what we're doing when we become proud. We display our ignorance. We're showing everybody just how little we recognize about ourselves, that there's nothing good in us. There's no reason for us to boast. So when we're proud, we're acting as if we're the creator when in reality we are only his creatures. We're forgetting naturally uh, who we are. And I want you to think about some of the things that people are proud about. And this will kind of go back to the question that I asked at the beginning here. Um, people are often proud when they have some type of power, right? They, they think that there's something that, because they've been placed in a position of authority. And scripture explains that God is the one who gives men power and authority and that he's able to take that power and authority away. We see this in Isaiah 40, verse 23, if somebody would like to read that for us. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent of blowing. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Okay, good. Right, brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Right? Now, when you think about God humbling men in authority, probably one of the places that your mind goes to, if you're familiar with the scriptures, is to Daniel and the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar discovered that truth the hard way, right? That, that God opposes the proud. King Nebuchadnezzar became strong and great, was a person of incredible importance in the world's eyes, but instead of praising and giving glory to God, he began to take pride in himself and in his power, as he himself related in Daniel chapter 4. So if, if I can have somebody read this for us, verses 30 through 32. shall be with the beasts of the field, and 
you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Okay, good. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. So the, the angel's pronouncement was carried out just as it had been proclaimed. And in verses 34 through 37, we find out what Nebuchadnezzar learned from this experience here. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my magister and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And then watch his conclusion here. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So there you have the testimony there from Nebuchadnezzar about what God did and what he learned from that Experience And it's really a tremendous example of why we should not be proud when we're given some type of power and authority. Rather, we should think about that power and authority and tremble before God in a sense and say, okay, how can I use this in a way that will magnify the greatness of God and, and his glory? So the lesson that we learned from Nebuchadnezzar's life is that any position or prestige that we have gained is from the hand of God. We must remember that and that he could easily take it away in an instant if he chooses. So people are often proud because of the power and authority that they are given. And they're often proud because of their talents and abilities. And Diana Lynn kind of alluded to this uh, earlier. Again, when we, when we think about uh, just different examples, I'm, I, I watch sports, so I see a lot of that kind of on display. I play sports and I see a lot of it in my own heart. So someone who is good at a particular sport may walk with a, a little bit of swagger, so to speak, because he or she can play that sport well. Um, and, and then there's just a myriad of different ways. I mean, you can think of a million examples. You could think of how pride can creep in. Uh, a good mechanic who, who fixes cars well after he fixes that car can step back and say, look at what my hands have done, right? Look what, what, what my mind has been able to accomplish. Um, somebody who's good at cooking, right, can step back and look at a meal, right, and just say, look how good I did on that, right? So there's a million different ways that we can boast with any talent or abilities that the Lord has given to us. And when we have those talents or, or, or abilities and we perform those things well, Often, we'll kind of look around, is anybody seeing what I just did, <laughs> right? We're looking for a little bit of notoriety on something uh, like that. But again, we have no reason to be proud about our talents 
and abilities because, listen, everything we have is a gift from God, right? Everything that we have is a gift from God. We're completely dependent on him for everything that we do. Even every breath that we draw, the book of Daniel talks about that, that our breath is in his hand, right? We can't boast about anything. And a good example of this is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul, in speaking to the Corinthian church, a lot of division going on there, a lot of boasting going on in the, in the church. And Paul says here, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right? Why do you boast as if it was your own doing? When we boast about our gifts within the church, we're lying because we're talking and acting as though we've achieved something that we have not. Right? In reality, we're able to achieve any, anything that we're able to achieve is only by God's grace. And so we give him the thanks and the praise uh, for that. Uh, John Bunyan had a good example of this, and he illustrated the truth this way. He said, think about a, a tinkling cymbal, right? So just think about the drums there. A tink, tinkling cymbal is an instrument of music with which a skillful player can make such melodious and heart-inflaming music that all who hear him play can scarcely hold from dancing. And yet, behold, the cymbal does not have life, neither does any music come from it in and of itself. But it sounds beautiful because of the skill of the person that plays it. I think that's a good example of Bunyan illustrating that the, the praise belongs to the one who's playing the, sim, the symbol, right? The symbol doesn't have any life in and of itself and in the same way. We are instruments in the hand of our God. And so anything that good, any, any good that comes from us ultimately redounds to his glory. We can do what we do only because God enables us to do it. And, and it's amazing how just insidious a sin pride is, though, because we can become proud even about our, our gifts within the church. And you can think about the many different ways that that can happen. So again, these are things that we must pay attention to. As believers, we sometimes have a far too rosy of a picture of our spiritual condition apart from Christ, and that's a dangerous place to be because we'll never appreciate the magnificence of what God has done for us in our salvation until we understand what the Bible says about us. Uh, when, when we think about the work of God within us, it should cause us to give praise to the Lord. And we recognize who we were before Christ saved us, right? We sh there should never be a, a thought of pride. And this can often creep in as we interact with an unbelieving world, right? We can exalt ourselves above them and look at them as if we've, we've arrived, right? How could they possibly do that? Those pagans, how could they act that way, right? And we forget that God plucked us out of that mire, plucked us out of that darkness. And listen, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we could travel down any path of sin that you can imagine. And if you don't think so, then you don't know your own, your own heart well enough. We're capable of the most heinous sins, but it's only because of the grace of God. And we, we must remind ourselves of that. 
Titus 3 makes that very clear for us, uh, that, that we too were those who once walked in that manner. And so there, therefore we should deal with humility with those around us, recognizing that it's only God's grace that we are who we are, and he alone deserves the glory for that. Paul used a, a choice word in Romans 5.10 to describe who we were before God saved us, and apart from his continuing work of grace in our lives, he says in Romans 5.10 that we were God's enemies. Just let that sink in for a moment. Think about that reality, that we were enemies of God. And we need to understand that we were God's enemies so that we properly can give him the praise and the thanks for what we see in our lives. Right? We didn't seek him or love him on our own. Even our best deeds were filthy rags in his sight, polluted by sin. And so how foolish it is for us to become proud of ourselves when apart from Christ, as Romans tells us, there is nothing good in us. There's nothing good that dwells within us. So proud people have an unbiblical view of sin and an unbiblical view of themselves. And believing that we were once God's enemies helps us to see the greatness of Christ and his glory and what he has done for us. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, how wonderful is this love that is manifested in giving Christ to die for us. For this is love to enemies. How wonderful was the love of the Father in giving such a gift to those who not only could not be profitable to him, but were his enemies and to so great a degree. We had great enmity against him. Yet so did he love us that he gave his own son to lay down his life in order to save our lives from his own throne there to be in the form of a servant. And instead of a throne of glory, gave him to be nailed to the cross and to be laid in the grave so that we might be brought to a throne of glory. How wonderful was the love of Christ in thus exercising dying love towards his enemies. He loved those that hated him, with hatred sought to take away his life, so as, so as voluntarily to lay down his life, that they might have life through him. That's an awesome reality when we think about what Christ has done for us, and the state in which we were in naturally when he died for us. Not as those whose lives were getting polished up and now now I'll die for you. You're starting to get better. No, those who were at war with him, who were his enemies. And so what does that do? Well, what it should do, the effect that it should have, is it should humble us. It should make us feel the weight of glory, of his grace, and of our sin. Des? No, this is really good and helpful. This, I was thinking about, you mentioned earlier, um, we have to war against this pride. Yeah. And in light of Yeah, Thank amen. In all things, from something as high as your salvation, yeah. God grants you, yep. to being able to tie your shoes or eat breakfast or go to work. Yep. Often we think about those big things and we, we're a little more thankful when something sort of happens unexpectedly. And we yeah. say, well, God, you're gracious. 
but being able to go to work every day yeah. and being able to use your mind and the skills that you have to work, all of yep. that comes from the Lord. Yes. He gives the power to be able to do that. Yep. And so it, it, it should cause us to consistently be thankful, and that's how we get more against that pride. Amen. Yeah, well, well said. Well said. Okay, let's take a look at the next section there on your notes, the folly of pride and its fruits. In other words, what it, what it produces, what pride produces uh, within us. And this will pick up on what, on what Desmond just uh, mentioned there and illustrated. Pride causes us to forget God. Right? It causes us to forget God. Even, even, as, even as believers, we can have that practical atheism in some of the things that we do, right? where we forget about God. And God warned the Israelites about this danger in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. And uh, again, this will illustrate what Desmond just mentioned. If somebody would like to read that for us, Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 14. So here's all these blessings, right, that, that, that God has given. And the danger in this is that your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And then the reminder there, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, remember what God did in the past so that you can see where you are today and the goodness that he is still pouring out upon us. But that is, that's one of the dangers. Proverbs actually talks about that in Proverbs 30, about the danger of poverty and the danger of riches, right? The danger of riches is that I forget the Lord, right? And I say, who, who is the Lord, right? The danger of poverty is that I steal and profane the name of my God. But when we think about that issue of pride, there's that tendency there to forget and to think, as Desmond said, to think that these things have come from my own hand or my own mind, my own strength, right? So we get a paycheck, comes in, I worked hard for this. And, and maybe we did, but the glory is to be given to God. Lord, thank you for giving me the mind and the strength to be able to work well to have this paycheck, which is from your, your hand, right? And it's good for us to do that because pride, again, can subtly creep into our lives, and when we don't take those times, as Desmond mentioned, to give thanks to God, to remember that everything we have is from Him, that can become a pattern in our lives, and slowly we can start to trust in ourselves and, and our abilities and forget that God is the one who gives them. So pride also causes us to make poor decisions. We see this in Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 16. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is arrogant and careless, right? So our pride often produces careless, thoughtless actions that hurt others and in the end hurt us as well. 
So you can see the ramifications of pride, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of those around us. Uh, pride also causes us to act in wicked ways. Second Chronicles 26, we read that God enabled King Uzziah to succeed in war. And it says, so much so that his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he became strong, listen to this, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptedly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So pride there caused Uzziah to act corruptly, to be disloyal to God and to lack reverence for him. And then pride often produces ingratitude or a lack of thanks. Second Chronicles 32, verses 24 and 25 says this, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. So there's another example of pride causing Hezekiah to be ungrateful for the healing that he had received from God. And unthankful, complaining people are proud people, right? We don't recognize what the Lord has given to us. And then pride also causes us to sin in our speech, in the things that we say. Uh, Psalm 31:18 says, Let the lying lips be mute which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. So pride is connected with lying and slandering others, especially those who do right. Another one there is, and I'm throwing out a few of these, I don't have all, all up on the screen here, but Psalm 123.4 links pride with the way we treat others. Psalm 123.4 says, Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Okay, so there's many different ways that pride can manifest itself. But we want to, we, we not only want to think what pride manifests, but what else does pride prevent? Okay, what else does pride what, what does pride prevent? Well, when we just think about this very practically, and this will hit home, I think, for us, is pride keeps us from praying. Because a lack of prayerfulness is a declaration of self-sufficiency or independence from God, right? I, I, I don't really need to pray. Um, and you can think about that in your own life. When times get really hard and you really feel, I need some help, it usually drives you to your knees, which is saying something about, the times when it doesn't drive you to your knees. <laughs> you, you feel that you don't need as much help or whatever the case uh, may be. Uh, pride keeps us or prevents us from reading God's word, right? Uh, maybe we think that we've got this figured out. I don't really need the wisdom from on high. I'm doing okay. Uh, pride, re, uh, pride keeps us or prevents us from uh, receiving life-giving rebuke from seeing our own sin and from repenting. Uh, it prevents us from truly listening to others, right? Again, because there's this sense of, I've got this figured out, 
I don't need help from others. I don't need others to speak into my life. All is, all is well. So we, we not only want to think about what pride produces, but what it also prevents uh, within us. Jonathan Edwards again summed up this idea well when he said, Pride is the main handle by which Satan grabs hold of Christian persons and is the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to hinder the work of God. And when you think about that in your own life, when you think about the hindering of the work of God in your life, connected to a neglect of the means of grace that God has given, pride is at the root of that. There's some type of self-sufficiency that is there. So it's foolish for us to be proud because of the many things that God's word reveals to us about what pride produces. Okay, let me just say one more thing here about, uh, about pride before we move on to humility. Um, and this kind of goes into the, the fruits of pride or the consequences of, of pride. And Wayne Mack, in his book that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Humility, the Forgotten Virtue, he gives this great example. He says this, Imagine planning a hike on a difficult trail. If we had never hiked this trail before, we might wisely ask someone who knew the trail to provide us with a map. Suppose this person took the time to draw us a map and even talked us through some of the difficult spots, pitfalls, and hidden dangers. With so much help at our disposal, we would be fools to throw away the map before starting out and deliberately ignore the warnings and advice that we had been given. And Matt goes on to illustrate, we're all on that path. We're all on that journey, the journey of life. And we've been given an infallible map, a map that is guaranteed to guide and direct us and to lead us into right paths and to avoid the many pitfalls that are before us. This map was not written by someone who has not only traveled the road, but one who created it and owns it. And so we're blessed beyond measure because we've been shown the way and warned of the dangers by the one who knows our road perfectly. Yet we often fail to pay attention to what what he says. And again, as we think about Genesis 3, that is the beginning. That is the root of all the other sins that we see in our lives. The root of pride. Okay, let's uh, go on for the sake of time here to this next. Yes, yes, please. Yes. Yeah, please read it. And this is, I mean, sometimes uh, it's the same, it's going back to Genesis. It is, absolutely. I agree. And your 15 is love not the world, neither the things of the world, the houses, the cars, the pride. I mean, you know. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. In the world, in any man who loves the world, the love of the Father is knowing him. Yeah, that's right. Okay? Yep. You got it. Now, here we go. In 16, for all that there is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, I mean the pride of the eye, and the pride of life. Yeah. Now, pride in, in Greek means alosenia. Mm-hmm. Alosenia is, uh, we think of pride, it is, uh, this is a very subtle word. Right. And it means self-confidence, yes. self-esteem, yep. and both. Yes. Do we have self-confidence? Yeah, absolutely. That is, absolutely. 
Yep, trusting in ourselves in any way. So yeah, great, great example, and I agree with you. That that connects well back with Genesis three. Thanks for thanks for bringing that out. So okay, let's let's look at humility with the uh, time that we have left here. The importance of it, and you can kind of see how when you work when you talk about pride, you kind of inadvertently talk about humility as well. And when you talk about humility, you kind of inadvertently talking about pride because those two. Um, go against each other. So when you're talking about one, you're really talking against the other as well. And again, when we think about humility, uh, Philippians 2 is one of the greatest passages to think about and to think what our Lord did. When we're exhorted there in Philippians 2, um, to, to not only think of ourselves, but to esteem others better than ourselves, the example that Paul gives there is Christ, when he says, let, let the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus himself. And then he goes on to illustrate the humility of Christ in coming and taking on the form of servant and dying, and not only dying, but dying the way he did, right? Humiliating himself to that extreme. And that's the, that's the example that Paul uses there in Philippians 2 to encourage us to walk in humility. If this is what the God-man did, God in the flesh, how much more should we follow in his, in his ways, right? So as we think about humility, that passage there in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, should kind of be the umbrella under which all other things fall. Because Christ is himself the epitome of <coughs> humility. And that's an amazing, amazing reality. Um, I mean, when you think about the way that he came into this world, how he lived in this world, how he died in this world. The whole life of Christ is a life of humility. And he did it for us and for our salvation. That, that, that's amazing. Just prideful, rebellious people. The Son of God humbles himself in this way. So just keep that in mind as we work through this, this uh, concept of humility. There's a few things that we know about uh, humility and why it's tremendously important. And the first one is because the Bible frequently commands us uh, to be humble, right? So we know just with commands coming at us to be humble, it's showing us that we have the tendency to be pro uh, proud, right? To be prideful. So First Peter, zip through a couple of these passages here. First Peter 5, verses 5 through 6. Somebody can read that for us? Clothe <clears throat> yourselves Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Okay, good. So, so clothe yourselves. Isn't that a great picture there? Right? Just put that on. Humility is what you should dress in as we interact with one another. And again, notice here that this is written as a command. It's not a suggestion. Be humble if you want to. Right? No, it's, it's you need to be humble. Right? So to fail to humble oneself is to disobey God. And we see this again show up in Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now here is, here is a manner that is worthy of the calling, right? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, so that aspect, again, of what's pleasing in the sight of God is when we walk with humility toward each other. Our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to humility in Matthew 23. 
<coughs> instructing his disciples, he said, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, So there we, we have the great picture, and Christ himself, again, being that example. He made that known to his disciples in Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So many passages point us to the importance of being humble and therefore highlights for us um, how serious God, God takes, it, takes this. Also, we know that humility is important because God promises to bless those who are humble in heart. James 4, 6 tells us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then a couple passages here out of uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Right? Humility comes before honor. And notice how the fear of the Lord is connected with that. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord, again, there's that connection, is riches and honor and life. And then one of the greatest promises here, Isaiah 57.15, if somebody can read that for us. Yeah, man, just the tender mercy of God in that. I, I love how, you know, Isaiah is just inspired to exalt the greatness of who God is. I, I'm high and lifted up. I inhabit eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, right, so that aspect of transcendence, God is massive, and that imminence of God with us. I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, a humble spirit for the purpose of reviving the spirit of the lowly and reviving the heart of the contrite. So those are really helpful as we think about that aspect of, of God blessing the, the humble. But again, our world thinks opposite of that, right? A, a common proverb, so to speak, from our world is, and I'll let you, I'll let you finish this, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's anti-biblical. So if you think that's in the scriptures, it isn't. <laughs> so make sure you're not going around quoting that. That, that, that. that isn't true. Nothing could be more diametrically opposed to the truth of the word of God than that. Scripture teaches that God helps those who come to him for help, who, who recognize in and of themselves their weakness, their humility, their dependence upon him. And the scriptures tell us that God delights to bless those who come to him with that disposition. Jesus taught this principle to his disciples on several occasions. You may remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, that, that poor of spirit, the bankruptcy, that I come to God, I'm in need of help. I'm spiritually bankrupt. 
I need the Lord to help me. Later, when the disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest, Jesus called a child over to himself and said to them, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So you see that little child run up to a father or mother in need of help. And I'm dependent. I, I need you. That's how we should be coming to God. Now, God has purposes in the valley of humiliation, which is the next point there on your, on your handout. God has purposes here in this valley of humiliation. And let's, I just want to mention a couple of those as we conclude here. I'm just trying to look at my notes and see how much time I have and what I want to highlight. Okay, so let's just think about one reason that God humbles us is because we're so proud, so prone to pride and so averse to humility that he brings us into that state in order to help us to again see our dependence upon him because naturally we don't act that way. As we see in Proverbs 10:4, the wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God, right? Apart from the grace of God in our lives, we naturally tend to ignore God and exalt ourselves. But thankfully, we have a God who is merciful and gracious and, and will not allow us to go on in our pride as his children. He, he knows our struggle with this sin to, to some degree, some of us more than others, and, and works in us to deliver us from our sinful pride. And we all desperately need to learn how to turn away from pride and, and how to embrace humility. And he often uses trials to bring us into that valley of humiliation to do this. Another reason that he does this is because through it, he's testing and increasing our faith in him. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter reminds the believers here, he says, In this, that is your salvation, <coughs> you rejoice, though now for a little while, and then notice this, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. So our faith is made stronger only as it's exercised and tested. And so God has a way of, of doing that within us. And then another reason that God leads us into the valley of humiliation is because he wants to use those trials in our lives to produce in us a quality of endurance so that we may become, as James 1 tells us, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, as painful and discouraging as the valley of humiliation may be, if we set our minds on the good that God is doing there and understand his purposes, we can maintain our joy. That's why we're instructed out of James 1 again here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's counter-human, right? When we face trials, we're not counting it all joy. 
All right, so we're instructed to do so because God has purposes behind all of those trials, ultimately to conform us into the image of his son. And that, that's what we want, right? We want to look more, we want to reflect Jesus more. We want to look more like him. But we don't often like the ways in which God uses in order to, con, to, to do that, to bring about that. So we have to be reminded of these things, that, that in the midst of those things, and that doesn't mean, hey, I got a smile on my face and I'm just going along and nothing's bothering me. There's, there's a contentment, there's a resting, there's a recognition that God is doing this in my life and he's doing it for his glory and for my good ultimately, even if I can't see that in this moment. And that's where we have to just preach the sovereignty of God and his love and care for us in our lives. Well, I want to conclude with a, uh, a prayer. Uh, many of you are familiar, familiar with the, uh, the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. <coughs> and the Valley of Vision, the first prayer in it is called the Valley of Vision. And the valley, the place of humiliation. And so this prayer says this. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. And I'm going to bring it out of the old King James Version and, uh, and make it modern for us. So, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. And then listen to what this says. Let me learn by paradox that the way down of humiliation, that is, the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. So, conclude with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just this time of, of going through the various passages that speak of the folly of pride and the wisdom of humility. And uh, Lord, this, this is a, a sin that we still battle with daily, uh, moment by moment, really. And so we, we pray for grace to help us to walk in a state of humility. And, and as we think about that, may we always have before us the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would walk as he walked when he was on this earth. And we thank you for sending him to live and die for the sin of pride that we see so readily within us. Keep working in us that which is pleasing in your sight for your glory and indeed for our good. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name.
Amen.